Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. In the nuclear bomb building business, breakout capacity is a measure of the time required between ordering up a bomb and having it. In the Iran case, it's mostly the time needed to enrich enough uranium to fire a single bomb. And it's now down to about a week in Tehran. At the rate, Iran's whirling centrifuges have been building its stockpile of fuel, most of it since our President Trump abandoned the ban on Iran's nuclear project. Our guests this hour are three authorities on the longer story here. Trita Parsi wrote the inside account of the roller coaster ride to the Iran deal of 2015, and he's deep in the details of efforts to revive it. Historian John Gazvinian at the University of Pennsylvania has made an epic novel out of three centuries in his masterpiece called America and Iran, A History, 1720 to the Present. Hussein Banai is a political scholar in Indiana who has written an almost psychiatric account of the identities in struggle here, Iran and the U.S. Let's start with you, Trita, if you will. At the Vienna Talks, and what's begun to sound like medical reports of a patient dying. What's at stake here? Who are the main players now? What's in dispute? The main players, of course, are the United States and Iran. But because the United States remains outside of the deal, they have not rejoined yet and have kept all of Trump's sanctions. The Iranians refuse to engage directly with the U.S. diplomats. And as a result, the Europeans have been given an absolutely central role as the mediators between the United States and Iran. What's at stake at the end of the day, it's not just a nuclear deal that would prevent Iran or block all of Iran's pathways to a bomb, but it's also whether there will be a gravitation towards a military confrontation between the United States and Iran. That certainly was the impression of Obama when he signed the deal in 2015. He believed that if there wasn't a deal, there would be a gravitation towards war. Today may not be as clear, but certainly one cannot say that the risk is entirely gone. For me, I got to say, there's a test here of the United States as, what do we want to call it? The leader of the empire, a constructive force in the world. Seems to me the history we're talking about since 1953 is a history of Grave challenge and finally great embarrassment to the fantasy of a U.S. empire leading the world constructively toward our ideals of equality and justice. Where do you put that consideration, Trita, on what's at stake in Vienna? Well, I think it is certainly related because if there is a nuclear deal and if U.S.-Iran tensions as a result significantly reduce, they will not go away altogether that really paves the way for the United States to remove more troops from the Middle East, more or less disengage militarily from the region. Doesn't mean that it would disengage politically. But to the question of can we get out of the Middle East or not, which has certainly been a key question for voters, the American public wants the troops to come home. A nuclear deal between the United States and Iran is a critical element, is almost the exit ticket for the U.S. to do so. Now, of course, with changing geopolitical circumstances, 
and particularly the Biden administration's belief that if they can give Putin a strategic defeat, perhaps unipolarity and American global military hegemony will be given another lease on life. And as a result, the desire to leave the Middle East may not be as strong as it was just two years ago when Biden himself during the campaign said that we should have far less troops in the region. But that is a critical element in which the Iran deal is more than just an arms control agreement. It's our assignment this hour to get to that broader piece, a reconciliation, a normalization, an inclusion of Iran in relations with us and the world. Barack Obama made this unquestionably the centerpiece of his international ambition, and he made his mark at it. Joe Biden, then his vice president, was engaged, but seems quite detached from the process these days. You're quite correct. Obama was extremely committed to this. This was a top priority. And I think to a certain extent, that was precisely because of the belief that if there wasn't a deal, there would be war. I don't think Biden is under the same impression. I don't think the Iranians have the impression that war is as likely as before. And I think Biden also feels that he is a president who has to focus on domestic issues, at least for the first year and a half. And as a result, there was a strong sense amongst many in his inner circle that he shouldn't be doing anything on foreign policy that could take political capital away from his domestic agenda and all of the crisis that he had to deal with following Trump's presidency. And that has definitely left a mark on these negotiations. Biden is detached. There is no sense that he sees this as the same type of priority as Obama did. And one of the key things that I think Biden seeks to avoid is to pay a high political cost for this deal. So keeping a degree of distance from the negotiations themselves also seems to be calculated to make sure that he is not affected by its potential failure. And if it succeeds, he will still be able to make sure that he doesn't pay the same political cost, a very high cost, that President Obama did back in 2015. Remember, that was in Obama's second term. Biden doesn't want to have to pay that political cost in his first term. Let's talk about another big personal change here. Bibi Netanyahu didn't like Obama, didn't like this deal, and he went all out to stop it. The government of Natali Bennett in Israel is quite different, sometimes hard to read, but what does that difference amount to? I think it's more of a difference in terms of style and decibel rather than in substance. The Bennett government still opposes the JCPOA. They just don't do it as ferociously publicly as Netanyahu was doing. Netanyahu almost saw an added pleasure in picking that fight with Obama and depicting American Democrats as not caring about Israel's security. Bennett doesn't pick those fights. He has a clear understanding that it lies in his political interest and in his coalition's political interest to rebuild relations between the United States and Israel, particularly between the Democratic Party and Israel. But it doesn't mean that when it comes to the substance of the JCPOA that he has adopted a more pragmatic tone at all. In fact, as I understand it, Israel's concerns are at the very center of the last sticking point, which is the potential delisting of the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Delisting of them on the international terror list. The U.S.'s terrorist list, correct. But when it comes to opposing the deal, we're not seeing much of a difference there. It's the same as before. Trudy Parsi, the Israeli record under Netanyahu has included 
threats of war against Iran and actual assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists in broad daylight, as if to say, you're not going to have a nuclear weapon, period. Does that assumption still apply in the background? Well, I think the Israelis certainly have engaged in those activities, and that was mostly under Trump. I don't know if they have done anything of that kind under the Biden administration. I think we've seen a lot of sabotage, but the type of almost James Bond-like Mossad operations in which, for instance, they assassinated the number two or number one person in the Iranian nuclear program, we've not seen under the Biden years. That does not mean that the Israelis don't have the capacity to do so or the willingness to do so. It's just I think that the political calculation is a rather different one. Is it clear to the Parsi why Israel, by and large, still doesn't like the idea of a guaranteed non-nuclear Iran? So the Israelis were the ones who made the Iranian nuclear issue an international issue. Back in the 1990s, they started to sound the alarm. And for a very long time, of course, the impression was that the primary and fundamental concern was that if the Iranians were to get a nuclear weapon, that would be, um, if not an existential threat, even though that's the rhetoric the Israelis use, nevertheless, a very, very significant challenge to Israel, one that they would simply not be able to accept. I think, however, as powerful of an explanation that that has been, and as easy it is to rely on it, because that's where the rhetorical level has been, reality has been much more complex than that. The JCPA did prevent the path for the Iranians to get a nuclear weapon. And non-proliferation experts and nuclear scientists have said you know, very clearly, there's never been an agreement that has been as tight and as secure as this one in terms of preventing a nuclear weapon. So why then was Netanyahu so opposed to it? Some of these answers, I think, came clear in some of the track two meetings that I participated in with Israeli officials in which also Iranian officials attended. It made it very clear that what was at the fundamental level of this issue is not the nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons is not unimportant, but it's more of the symptom of a much deeper geopolitical issue. The Israelis made very clear that the fundamental issue for them is that they cannot tolerate the United States coming to terms with a country like Iran that continues to question Israel's right to exist unless Iran comes to terms with Israel. And until that happens, it does not matter what the details of the nuclear deal would be. Israel would not allow its best friend America to become friends with its worst enemy unless Iran's attitude changed dramatically towards Israel. That's not to say that the nuclear issue is not important. But if it was everything, then it's really difficult to explain why Netanyahu would go to such great lengths to sabotage the nuclear deal, because at the end of the day, even the Israeli Atomic Energy Agency endorsed the JCPOA and said that it was a good thing. So if all of the nuclear folks are saying that this is the best way of preventing the path to a nuclear weapon, then we have to ask ourselves, what kind of degree in science did Bibi Netanyahu get at MIT that makes him so much better than all of these other scientists? Can you get your own head into that objection or hesitation, at least, in the Israeli mind? Yes, absolutely. I I think there is a way of understanding why some of the Israelis, and Netanyahu in particular, would be thinking this way. I think they ask themselves a very fundamental question. If Iran and the United States resolve their nuclear tensions and U.S.-Iran tensions go down, doesn't become a love fest, 
And, and America then moves on from the region because he has global responsibilities and does not any longer pay as much attention to the Middle East. Will Israeli-Iranian relations reduce proportionately as well? And if it doesn't, does it mean that Israel then is stuck in the same region as with Iran as before with still a hostile Iran, a bad relationship, but no longer having the United States squarely in its corner because the U.S. has moved on because it's reduced its key tensions with Iran. And as long as that is the case, and incidentally, I disagree. I think the answer is different. But the answer the Israelis came to is that, no, there will not be a proportionate reduction. And as a result, Israel will be, in their own words, abandoned by the United States. And it's more important to prevent that abandonment than it is to prevent a nuclear weapon in Iran. Coming up, the good old days when the U.S. and Iran thought they were made for each other. This is Open Source. In the long perspective of John Gasvinian's history, the relations between the U.S. and Iran can read very like an old love feast that went too far. I asked him to rate the urgency of the impasse today. I don't know that there is as much urgency as there used to be for a lot of the reasons that, that Trita is outlining. The importance of the issue is still there, of course. On the whole, the world would be a better place with a JCPOA back in place. But the reality is it's become largely irrelevant and it's become right. a sort of st stumbling block to any kind of U.S.-Iran conversation about anything. You know, nothing can really take place until the JCPOA issue is resolved. Uh, but the reality is Iran is already basically exactly where we said that we would never allow them to be. You know, 10 years ago, Obama would always say, you know, we'll never allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. A lot of more hardline voices would say we don't even want to allow Iran to have even the capability. Well, guess what? They have the capability. They don't have a weapon and they don't particularly seem to want one still. But in many ways, that ship has sailed. You know, or the horse has bolted the stable, if you prefer that metaphor. And, you know, on the Iranian side, I think there is still a certain amount of urgency in the sense of getting sanctions relief. But the idea that the JCPOA could be the beginning of a larger conversation between the U.S. and Iran seems to have stalled. John Gazzanian, I want to get into a taste, at least, of your remarkable 300-year history. The big story is that for most of those 300 years, a majority, relations have been complex, discovering each other, but they've been overwhelmingly friendly almost flirtatious. The first Persian ambassador to the United States around 1895 or something said, this country felt like a sort of compound dream between Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. It had everything. And there's an air of excitement, of affection. The Persian room at the Plaza Hotel in New York, famous gathering spot. That incredible inscription on the face of the main New York Post office, neither snow nor rain nor gloom of night stays these carriers on their appointed rounds. That was borrowed through the Greek historian Herodotus from a tribute to the Persian delivery system back in prehistory. Summarize that long record of warmth up to the point when the Shah of Iran in Nixon time was the number one buyer of American weaponry. What does that count? How much of it is real? Yes, it's a very real and very long and very warm, affectionate relationship between the United States and Iran, and even before the United States exists as a sovereign state between the American colonies of North America and Iran, before there's any actual contact between the peoples. There are idealized versions that the Persians and the colonial North Americans have of each other, some of the very first American newspapers in the 1720s. 
in Philadelphia and Boston were consumed with Iran, with Persia, as they called it. The same was true into the mid-19th century when Iranians first discovered the idea of the United States as a more uh, benevolent version of the Western countries that they were struggling with at the time. You know, these two countries for a very, very long time, for most of their history, have had a, a history of mutual ad- idealization and fascination, which makes the last 40 years of their history uh, cast it in a very different kind of light, almost as a sort of aberration. Iran was beset in the middle of the 20th century by Russia on one border, by the British Empire overall. The United States looked good. And yet there are these three dates we have to contend with, 1953, 1979, and even 2018 when President Trump undid the nuclear ban. 1953, the CIA, led by Kim Roosevelt on the ground in Tehran, unseated an immensely popular democratic reformer, Mohammad Mossadegh, and installed the Shah. 1979, after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Iranian students took the American embassy and held it for more than 400 days. America held hostage in Ted Koppel's famous nightly reports of that scene. That's still a big scar in the American mind. And now Trump disengaged the agreement around nuclear weapons. How did those events come to wound what might have been and could still be a critically interesting, important, constructive relationship? Yes, and I could even add to that the assassination of Qasem Soleimani in January 2020, perhaps. Yeah, I think the two traditional dates, the first two that you mentioned, the so-called original sins, um, if anything, I would take paradoxically as a historian, take the approach that you might not expect me to take, which is to say that we should actually not be imprisoned by history. Uh, History can actually liberate us. There's sometimes too much emphasis on these two big moments, and they are big moments, no question about it. In the United States, the 53 original sin is virtually obliterated. You never see it in the New York Times accounts of what's happening or what's the background of the Iran conflict. No, certainly. And these are important dates. There's no question about it. But I've always felt that it's not like there are people sitting in Washington going, we'd love to have better relations with Iran, but we just can't get past 1979, you know, and the hostage crisis. That's just driving me crazy. You know, I cannot forgive Iran for that. Or people sitting in the foreign ministry in Tehran going, well, you know, we'd like to improve relations with the U.S., but we just can't get past 1953. These things matter, and of course, they've shaped the history. But what's much more relevant is the many, many layers of grievances and frustrations that have layered upon layered in the 40 years since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. There are some very good and very pragmatic reasons why both countries' leaders don't trust each other at this point. So I think the history is is important, but I argue, if anything, that the history can liberate us. Because when we look at the deeper history, the 200-year history, the 300-year history, we see countries that have no reason to be at loggerheads like this and that actually have been on the same side of history for most of their most of their story together. And I think I would even argue today still could be. Go back to 53, though. It's important. Oil was the reason that first the Brits and then by handoff to the Eisenhower administration, it was the first big overthrow of a government abroad by Americans. It was neoliberalism before its time, and it had real consequence. Explain all that. Yes, absolutely. So in 1951, there was a new prime minister in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was enormously popular, especially with the younger and more educated and more kind of urbanized and more, frankly, more Western-looking middle class in Iran. He comes to power on a wave of frustration with the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which until then had had a monopoly over Iranian oil. 
pledges to nationalize the oil industry, take it back into Iranian hands, uh, the idea that Iranian oil should be for the benefit of the Iranian people. But he's also a genuine Democrat and a constitutionalist to his very core and believes that the Shah, the king at the time, should reign rather than rule directly. So, you know, he's not very popular with the king. He's not very popular with the British. The Americans, you know, have a fairly agnostic attitude to him. The Truman administration sees him... You know, as a little bit of an odd, eccentric kind of guy, a bit of a demagogue, but uh, ultimately on the right side of history. And they try to urge the British to compromise with him. They don't. And for two years, there's a real standoff between the United Kingdom and Iran over the nationalization of the oil industry. That ends in 1953 with the British government convincing the uh, newly elected Eisenhower administration to use the CIA to overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh. Truman was clear, though, that the United States was not going to be in the business of overthrowing government. The progress of the Shah, more and more ineffective, the son of a real tough guy, but not a tough guy himself, is another whole story. He became addicted to American weaponry, and in the end, it undid him. He himself became a cruel autocrat and a very unpopular figure up to the revolution. So they hand it back by taking our embassy. To me, that always is illuminating because... The Shah by then was very, very close to the Rockefeller Empire, which is close to all power in the United States. And um, the Iranians gave it back to us. Yes, I think this is one of the things that's often missed about the hostage crisis. There are many reasons why it took place. The kind of proximate reason was that the deposed Shah was admitted to the United States for cancer treatment. And the Iranian public, particularly some of the more radicalized elements, simply did not believe that he was really there for cancer treatment. And the reason they didn't was because 25 years earlier, 26 years earlier, in 1953, this was a period when Iranians had rallied behind uh, this kind of exciting moment of national self-determination under Mossadegh from 51 to 53. really believed they were finally taking affairs into their own hands and controlling their own oil and their own resources. And they had been unpleasantly surprised overnight by a coup plot that had been hatched at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And at the time, the Shah had fled very briefly to Iraq and then to Rome and then was quickly flown back into power by the CIA. So 26 years later, a lot of those people, those memories are still relatively fresh. Reminder, Jimmy Carter was president. He owed a lot to the Rockefellers. He did allow the Shah in. And the embarrassment of that hostage taking, America held hostage, cost him his presidency, no question about it. So this moves great events. Absolutely. And there was a sense of vengeance towards the end. I mean, the hostage crisis didn't begin out of an act of sort of vengeance aimed at Jimmy Carter. But by the end, after over a year, the Shah had died uh, in exile. He was no longer clear what the hostages were even hostage to. The Ayatollah seemed to want to drag out the issue right up until the very, very end when he made sure that the hostages were not released until just 15 minutes into Ronald Reagan's presidency. In that sense, that can be seen very much as a kind of targeted message to the United States. You know, you overthrew our government. You know, we've demonstrated we can overthrow your president uh, as well. Although there are, of course, other reasons and other explanations for why the hostage crisis dragged out for as long as it did. Can I throw in another piece of history? And it's our history at stake here. I wonder if it's fair to say that the Middle East and maybe Iran is the place where the fantasy of the American empire crashed and burned. The notion that U.S. power projection could bring stability something like order and a measure of happiness to a wider world. It was the misbegotten project after the 9-11 attacks to deliver, according to the historian Eric Hobsbawm, an unaccompanied solo performance 
of world supremacy. We're years down the road from that, but it seems to me all of this turns in Iraq, maybe most spectacularly in the failure of American commandos to liberate that embassy in Iran. You know, when you talk about the narrative of imperial decline, there is always the sort of the beginning of the end moment, right? And I feel like we've heard versions of that many, many different times. I mean, the fall of Saigon, the embassy hostage crisis in 1979. But yes, obviously things seem to go in a very different direction after 9-11. But yes, I mean, this was certainly one of the major turning points. I think it was the first time that very, very large numbers of Americans, you know, sort of the American public at large, had seen their country humiliated on a scale they'd never seen before in their recent memory and on sort of live television night in and night out for well over a year. In that sense, I think it had even more of an impact than the fall of Saigon in some ways. This was the first time people had seen people in the Middle East burning American flags and burning effigies of their president and so on. Mm. Something that is so taken for granted now today that we've almost forgotten how unusual and how kind of painful that must have been in 1979 for the average American television viewer, right? Right. John Gassadian, you say history is not a vice. It's there, it informs, but it does not dictate how we feel. How would you mitigate the pain, the humiliation? Start again. Remember, we used to be friends. There's a lot we like about each other, culturally, politically, every way. Like I said before, I don't actually think that it's, the, it's these historical episodes that are, are what's preventing that. I think that if we wanted to do that, I don't think that you would see an outpouring of resistance from the American public because they're still so angry about 1979 and the hostage crisis. The resistance is much more entrenched and much more structural and much more at the level of kind of political interest groups at this point. You know, the American public, I don't think, actually cares that much about the relationship between the United States and Iran. But there are very influential voices in Congress on Capitol Hill, as well as among some of America's allies in the region, in the Persian Gulf, as well as in Israel, that are very resistant to the idea of a closer relationship between the United States and Iran. And of course, it should not be forgotten that it... But what would you build it around, for example? What money-making effort? What public project can you imagine taking the memory into the future? There'd be no shortage of opportunities. I mean, after 9-11, there was an opportunity to share the battle against Sunni jihadi radicalism in the region. The United States and Iran were cooperating in Afghanistan, for example, against the, the Taliban right after uh, 9-11. I'm talking about 2002, 2003. There have been more recent opportunities for the United States and Iran potentially to cooperate, but they haven't been cooperating. They've just been sort of chasing the same quarry uh, in Iraq and Syria, namely ISIS you know, fighting the same foe, you know, but they've long ago given up on the idea that they can actually work together because again and again, they've seen that the political circumstances in both countries and in other countries make that very, very difficult. And I was about to say, also, it should not be forgotten that there is just as much of a strong constituency against better relations in Iran as well. You know, Iran is a post-revolutionary state. It has trapped itself into a corner in some ways over the last 40 years and made it very, very difficult for the idea of advocating better relations with the United States to actually enter the political discourse as well. Trita Parsi, better relations, a whole relationship with Iran, was part of the original Obama dream. Do you have an idea how it could be approached in 2022? First of all, certainly it is doable, and I, I agree with John that the state of affairs is deplorable, and, and there's plenty of good reasons as to why relations should be improving. I do, however, believe we also have to recognize that there is a fundamental conflict there that will not go away in and of itself. Certainly, the interference of other regional states who prefer to see a continuation of a U.S.-Iran enmity, 
uh, because of the benefits that gives them uh, or the security they think it gives them is very important and should not be ignored. But I think we have to recognize that the United States and Iran are essentially seeking dominance in the same territory. The United States has had an approach towards the Middle East since the mid-1990s of being a dominant military power there. Iran has always, whether it's this regime or the regime of the Shah, opposed extra-regional powers having that type of a dominant military position in the region. And, and the Shah did quite a lot to convince the United States after the Brits had left the Persian Gulf in 1971 to not come in military, but instead let Iran take over that role and shoulder that responsibility. So as long as they're you know, in a position of seeking to compete for this position... Uh, I think there will be a fundamental problem that cannot be wished away. Part of the reason I think it was easier for the Obama administration to strike the nuclear deal is because Obama very much wanted to reduce U.S. military presence in the Middle East. And, you know, his pivot to Asia was very much about getting out of the Middle East. If you're out of the Middle East, then that critical component of competition and tensions between Iran and the United States is almost in and of itself resolved. Uh, and it opens it up for an opportunity for improvement in areas that otherwise have been blocked for many reasons, including this one. This one, however, tends to be the most invisible one uh, because it is at the geostrategic level and it's not something that is often or easily discussed. So that issue has to be resolved one way or another. And I think the trends in the United States are such that with the American public more and more questioning the United States having 750-plus bases around the world, questioning whether this type of a, um, a military posture of dominance really adds security to the United States, that has opened it up to be able to find ways to resolve this issue or at least get rid of this one key obstacle. After that, there's going to be a whole set of other issues and emotions, etc., that need to be addressed as well. It's not going to be easy. But I think ignoring this geostrategic conundrum will make it next to impossible. Trita, reading the papers, you could wonder if it's not just American force projection out there. In the case of Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Israel, there's an appetite for American power in those places. Do we understand that? Do we get that right? A lot of the countries that we call security partners in the region, or oftentimes are referred to as allies in the media, even though there actually isn't a formal alliance, they have benefited from the American security umbrella. They love to see the United States stay in the region. In fact, deepen its security obligations in the region. The security umbrella and the manner in which the United States have put its very strong military finger on the scale has shifted the balance of power in the region in their favor in a manner that they could not achieve on their own based on their own power. So they clearly are opposed to the idea of the United States uh, withdrawing militarily or disengaging militarily. And they have done quite a lot to try to keep the United States in the region, and they continue to do so. Uh, and that is a critical element because one of the cards they have to play is that they buy a lot of American weaponry. And by that, you have the American weapons industry very much being in favor of having these positions of military dominance in all kinds of different corners of the world because it is extremely lucrative from an economic standpoint. Whether it is good mm. for American security, whether it advances U.S. national interests, whether it stabilizes these regions is an entirely different question. Coming up, 
how an Iranian-American gets over the gap between the national identities inside himself. This is Open Source. Republics of Myth is the title of our guest, Huspanai's new book, written with two co-authors about the U.S. and Iran. Two republics with revolutions in their founding, and a lot of mythology still driving them today. In the American case, it's the frontier myth and exceptionalism in general. Heroes on the move with names like George Washington, Sam Houston, Daniel Boone. The Iranian version includes a distaste or even revulsion regarding foreigners and foreign interference and foreign cultural poisoning. Also, the elevation of a distinctly Iranian character and culture above others. Also, respect for popular sovereignty and an unusually strong reverence for charismatic figures. I'm asking you, Haspanai, to play psychiatrist. How could those different mindsets make stronger connections? I have to say that I'm not sure if it's psychiatric, but it is certainly a pattern that you'll see when it comes to selective readings of history. I very much agree that history, it is problematic to use it as an all-encompassing force or frame in U.S.-Iran relations. But it is clear that there are certain patterns that emerge when it comes to different regimes appropriating history for their own purposes. Here, what's important to note is that we're dealing with two revolutionary countries, countries that are born out of revolution, although in the case of Iran, we're talking about a particular government that is born out of a very young revolution by historical measures, 43 years only. In the case of the United States, that initial uh, grievances against the British gave way to all sorts of self-satisfying providential notions that uh, had at its heart with the increase in American status and power, the notion of American exceptionalism, America as a safeguard of democracy and an international liberal order, especially in the 20th century and beyond, that has very much embedded itself into the uh, national security planning and decision-making among American policymakers from the Carter administration up to the Trump years. When you take people's testimonies and you have them actually in neutral settings, confront their Iranian counterparts, as we have done with multiple conferences, you see these strands of narrative emerge, either as justifications for why certain decisions were made or why certain opportunities were not taken. Favorite examples, please. I don't know if I have a favorite example, but it is uh, one of the most contentious meetings that we had were about the Iran-Iraq war. And it was very clear from the Iranian side that the insistence of the United States that the government of Iran was not legitimate as it aided Saddam Hussein, as it shared intelligence. Yeah, the United States helped Saddam Hussein in that unmerciful war through the the 1980s. That's right. And and, uh, I, I should add as well, also a complete lack of care for understanding different strands of oppositional thinking and battles between political factions inside Iran, which sadly continues to this day really cemented in some Iranian former policymakers thinking that this was ultimately about bullying. It was it didn't have an, an, an ounce of empathy in it. And on the part of the United States, their grievance that, you know, their uh, diplomatic staff were taken hostage. That was clear that it echoed in administration after administration. This was a country or a regime that had broached important diplomatic norms regardless of the tension in the relationship. Husband, I, I don't want to put you on the spot exactly, but I'd love you to testify from your own experience of being born in Iran 
an Iranian till you were 15. You come to the United States, you now have perfect English. You look, sound, talk, write like an American. But these things are all swirling inside you, I would guess, every day, maybe every minute. How do the two Huspanais sort of coexist and talk to each other out of these two different myths? Well, I mean, I think it has been an education at that level, at the personal level. My experience, I should say, is not atypical. There were a lot of Iranians of my generation who grew up in the first phase of revolutionary fervor after the revolution. And I was uh, born and raised in Tehran until I was about 15. And I left the day before I was my military service was due, which, again, it's not atypical. Many people of my generation did that and then moved to Canada. And now uh, I have been living in the United States for the past 16 years. It's been an education for me, the process of research and being part of this larger project. I should acknowledge my co-authors, John Tierman and Malcolm Byrne, through various conferences, engaging with Iranians of different backgrounds, as well as Americans of different backgrounds. Just how much of this story of this relationship itself had a particular preset narrative in my mind before I got exposed to the particulars of the decision-making or the background conditions, which is something that is very much part of the central story here. There are a multiplicity of constituencies with uh, very different accounts of their own government's feelings and sentiments toward particular presidents, clerical leaders, political factions, etc. This pluralism is completely washed over by the very solid enmity at the state level, which I've come to believe is actually itself a central obstacle uh, in the relationship. I want to know how you got perfect English. <laughs> I want to know what it's like to be assimilating with yourself toward a, a dream of something resolved between these two nations. Here, I have to tell a quick story about my English teacher in Canada, Mrs. Blonde, who, when I arrived to in, in Toronto and didn't speak a lick of English and was a mute, really, for two years, observing people to, you know, pick up on mannerisms. And so I wouldn't embarrass myself in front of vicious high school classmates and audience. Uh, Mrs. Blonde, who taught Shakespeare at my school in one particularly difficult session where I had to memorize a, a soliloquy from Othello, very kindly pointed out to me that none of the students in the class had a clue about what Shakespeare was meaning or saying in this text, just like I didn't. The key was the performance, to be able to mm. enact and play out that soliloquy and to bring feeling, sentiment, and out of that would come continuous engagement with the meaning. That unlocked a black box in my brain. And mm. it, it helped me a great deal to such a degree that by the time I graduated from university, I was a speechwriter for then Canadian finance minister, Paul Martin, who went on to become the prime minister of Canada. Trita, back to you. How does the Vienna process somehow carry the history, the dream of not only non-proliferation, but also a kind of exemplary model of of how the world gets dealt with. Sadly, I have to say that the promise and the confidence that existed in which the countries in the P5 plus one, I would say particularly the Europeans, but certainly the Obama administration itself, like to point to the JCPOA as an example of what multilateralism is and what it can achieve is largely gone now. Again, as I mentioned, the Iranians won't even talk directly to the US, so it's not the same process as before. 
But more than anything else, there doesn't seem to be the belief on either side that this is an agreement that will last long. And as a result, neither side is investing much political hope or capital in it. It's mostly something that if it occurs, it will occur because it is to the interest of both sides, at least in the short term. But the confidence that this could end up becoming a transformative moment that changes not just the trajectory of Iran's nuclear path, but changes the trajectory of U.S.-Iran relations in the direction that Hulsen John has mentioned, does not seem to exist on either side here. In fact, I fear that at best it will become a pause, a brief respite in which they regroup and prepare themselves for what they seem to believe is the inevitable showdown that will happen when the next American president comes in and tears up whatever agreement they have signed. You think that would happen again? If the Republicans win in 2024 and take the presidency in 2025, some of the leading figures there have already made clear that this is what they will do. Ted Cruz has said it, Cotton has said it, Mike Pence have said it, and there's little opposition to that within the Republican Party. Opposition to the JCPOA has almost become an identity issue for Republicans. If you're a Republican, you are against abortions, you're pro-gun, and you hate the JCPOA. There's not much of a conversation or a debate about this. John Gazidian, what what's the danger in that scenario? Doesn't that scare you a little bit? A world without an example of non-proliferation? Sure. I mean, I think... Though we also have to remember that the world does have a very good example of non-proliferation, which is the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty of 1968-1970. We have been embarked as a species for for decades on a process of non-proliferation and disarmament and peaceful nuclear cooperation. That's also what seems to be going up in smoke, which is unfortunate. So, you know, yeah, I agree with Trita. And I think the other thing is, you know, it it speaks to the the fundamental dysfunction, I think, in the way that uh, Iran is dealt with in the United States and the way the United States is dealt with in Iran. I mean, both these countries have become trapped in these very, very ossified, very unproductive ways of looking at each other. In the United States, as Trita says correctly, I mean, the the Republican message is just regime change and maximum pressure. And, you know, uh, it's almost like they're trying to replay the playbook of the the Cold War against the Soviet Union and hoping for the same kind of result, which they're not going to get. And then on the Democratic side, it's sort of containment and multilateralism, but aimed at the same basic goal, which is the weakening of isolation of Iran, you know, sort of indirect kind of regime change or uh, regime alteration of some form or another. This is a very unimaginative way to look at foreign policy. I mean, no one really seriously talks about diplomacy and dialogue and rapprochement with, with the Islamic Republic, which is a shame because the one time it was tried, it actually kind of worked. The extent that it didn't work easily was a product of the, again of the dysfunctional polit- political atmosphere. I mean, it, but in, but it worked in 2015. It worked. We got a deal, uh, and yet no one seems to want to do that kind of work again. Husbandai, you're the young man with imagination here. Can you outline a better prospect and how we might start getting there? I'm afraid I share the same pessimism about the political scene in both countries not being conducive to the kind of transcendence that. Uh, I think we all and Iranians and Americans wish to see. I think the difficulties here, understanding the obstacles are just as important, frankly, than any kind of scheme that might seem Pollyannish without any practical solution as to how, to how to overcome those obstacles. And the obstacles here are really amplified by the way in which the nuclear deal has become the linchpin of this relationship. On the United States, the exception that proved to be the rule, the Obama administration's rapprochement, 
really couldn't ultimately overcome the kind of very technocratic, practical, limited framing of the JCPOA as an arms control treaty without any other possible dimensions. And on the Iranian side, this gradually over time, I mean, it took, we forget, it took you know more than two years from the start of direct talks on it for it to come about. And on the Iranian side, you had a similar kind of domestic coalition, coalitional opposition that made sure that it didn't go any farther than that. And in both cases, really, the only reason why that opening happened is why is probably because the United States made such a catastrophic strategic mistake after the invasion of Iraq in the Middle East that allowed for the Obama administration to change the narrative so drastically. Otherwise, it would have been dead on arrival. His opponent in the Democratic primaries, Hillary Clinton, was absolutely opposed to that process, for instance, in 2007, 2008. People forget that the only reason probably Barack Obama won that nomination was because of his very consistent and steadfast opposition to the Iraq war, but more importantly, for engaging with America's enemies, and especially and at that time with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who probably was the least palatable face of a post-revolutionary Iran. And he managed to overcome that. But then we saw that how the grind of domestic politics and opposition, even within the Democratic Party, we tend to forget how much uh, leading senators like Chuck Schumer also ensured that this doesn't go beyond that kind of a technocratic agreement, really left it just as that. And Trump comes into office. And for him, this was just about canceling the Obama administration. Trudy Parsi, the standard of the Quincy Institute, which you helped found, is to emphasize restraint in national affairs, non-military approaches to problems, non-intervention across borders. Apply that logic as you can to the United States and Iran today. When you take a look at the 40-year-old enmity between the two countries that, in my view, has neither benefited the United States nor Iran, uh, so much of the U.S.'s policy in the Middle East over the last two decades have been centered around the idea of containing and isolating Iran. We have made significant sacrifices for that issue and as a result have ended up um, not having diplomatic relations or being on talking terms with several key actors in the region, which then reduces American maneuverability and options. Which players are you talking about? Well, everything from Syria to key actors inside of Iraq uh, to uh, actors in, in Lebanon. We have less diplomatic maneuverability in the Middle East than, for instance, the Russians do. As John pointed out, the JCPOA worked. In fact, I think we're really underestimating the tremendous value, not just of the agreement itself, but how it came about. We're talking about the United States playing a key leadership role in uniting the P5 plus one, meaning that Russia, China, the European countries, Germany, were all on the same side on this issue and collaborated extremely effectively with each other. And then didn't use that to force on the Iranians some sort of a short-term deal that the Iranians would do everything they could to get out of, but rather sought a genuine compromise that actually gave the Iranians good reasons to want to stay in the agreement. That's how you make a successful agreement. A successful agreement is one in which both sides feel that they want something. And as a result, they prefer to stay in the agreement than to leave it. And all of this was done without a single 
single shot being fired. We do not have a lot of examples in modern history in which a situation that was on the brink of war was resolved diplomatically between major powers through real compromise without a single shot being fired. This is something we should be replicating else, whether you agree with the specific details of the JCPOA or not is besides the point. The fact is that we showed here that there is a much, much better way of resolving conflicts than to go to war, and it is possible. It takes leadership. It takes courage. It takes a willingness to pay a political price. But we are in a situation, unfortunately, in which all too often it is politically less costly to escalate than it is to de-escalate. It's politically less costly to be militaristic than to really invest in diplomacy. And this is not just an American phenomenon. In fact, I think it's exactly the same situation in Iran. It takes, I mean, there's a far greater comfort level with the Iranian government to stay the course of enmity and perhaps even escalation than to shift towards diplomacy and de-escalation. Uh, it, it creates all kinds of additional political challenges for them internally. And as long as we have that situation, we should not be surprised that so many resolvable conflicts actually deteriorate into conflict rather into solutions. That's trouble for all of us, and you make a wonderful case, Judah Parsi, for another path. Gentlemen, we've gone as far as I've ever been into the complexities, the contradictions of not just arms control, but the deeper feelings in international relations. I thank you all. Husbani in Bloomington, Indiana. John Gasvinian in Philadelphia. Trita Parsi in Washington. Thank you all so much. And good luck to the dealmakers in Vienna. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. Husbani's new book with John Terman and Malcolm Byrne is called Republics of Myth. John Gasvinian, stylish historian, wrote... America and Iran, 1720 to the present. Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, is the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Read more from Quincy Fellows at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you can find Daniel Larison's reflections on Husbani's new book. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a group of independent podcasters making shows for curious listeners. And there's some big news. Our sister Hub and Spoke show, Rumble Strip, from Erica Heilman, was just nominated for a Peabody Award. The nominated episode is Finn and the Bell, about a young man named Finn Rooney and how the effects of his suicide in 2020 rippled through his small Vermont town. Find it at rumblestripvermont.com. And you can find the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.